first they sent me some kind of like men. I said, no, I don't want I want a woman to read my book. So when they found it was turned out good, they said, wow, this is a good idea. I said, no, told you. <laughs> Former Guantanamo prisoner Mansoura Daifi, author of the new memoir, Don't Forget Us Here, Lost and Found at Guantanamo. He was speaking to us from Serbia. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astujo, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, and Mary Conlon. Our general manager is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBOO has a mobile app. You can listen to all your favorite shows, subscribe to KBOO Podcast, even set KBOO as your alarm clock. Just look for KBOO on the iTunes and Google Play Store. And don't forget to leave us a five star review. Join KBOO every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for Counterspin, a show that provides a critical examination of major media stories and exposes what the mainstream media missed. Counterspin exposes and highlights censored stories, sexism, racism, and homophobia in the news, the power of corporate influence, gaffes and goofs by leading TV pundits, and more. That's every Friday at 5.30 p.m. here on your community radio station. KBOO Portland. Thank you for tuning in to Coast Range Radio, the radio program of the Coast Range Association. My name is Andrew. We really appreciate everyone listening. We'd like to hear from our listeners. So send us an email at andrew at coastrange.org and uh, let us know what you think of the show. Today, I'm speaking with two researchers who are a part of a research project called Assessing Community Vulnerability to Ocean Acidification Across the California Current Ecosystem. And this is focusing on uh, the impacts of uh, ocean acidification on the West Coast and specifically uh, impacts and adaptive capacity and strategies uh, employed by shellfish farmers and other shellfish fisheries. So welcome to the sh- to Coast Range Radio, Dr. Melissa Ward, who is a PhD postdoctoral researcher working out of San Diego State University, and Ryan Hassert, uh, who is a, pub- a public policy analysis graduate student at Oregon State University. Thanks for having us, Andrew. You know, I think our listeners have um, definitely heard of ocean acidification, but I think uh, everyone could, who's listening and I myself could appreciate a, a primer on what is ocean acidification and hypoxia, maybe provide a explanation of these environmental phenomena and their causes. Sure. Uh, as you've probably heard, ocean acidification, which we often call OA, is describing the global phenomenon of decline in ocean pH or an increasing level of acidity in the global oceans. 
And this happens because we're emitting an excessive amount of CO2 into the atmosphere, and that's happening due to vehicle emissions, energy production, and other activities that release CO2 into the atmosphere. So once that CO2 is in the atmosphere, it causes a myriad of problems, which you've probably all heard about, increased global temperatures, extreme weather, those kinds of things. Uh, and on the one hand, the ocean absorption of a certain level of that CO2 is good because it's mitigating some of those climate effects. It absorbs about a third of the CO2 that goes into the atmosphere from human causes. But then on the other hand, it's not so good because when the ocean absorbs that CO2, the CO2 reacts with seawater and uh, it just, it sort of absorbs all of that CO2 like a sponge. And the reaction that happens when seawater and CO2 interact is that it increases the total level of acidity in the ocean. And the CO2 also reacts with an ion in seawater called carbonate. And it reduces the level of carbonate ion in the ocean. And it just so happens that carbonate ions are a key building block for animals that build hard parts. So corals or oysters, mussels, clams, those kinds of things. And when there is less building block available, those organisms have a harder time growing, surviving, uh, metabolizing, uh, et cetera. So that is the, in a nutshell, the short description of ocean acidification, which coincides also with a reduction in total global oxygen, uh, ocean oxygen, which is the hypoxia part of OAH. The oxygen and CO2 are sort of tightly linked in the ocean. And you can, if you've taken a basic biology, you can think about the um, photosynthesis respiration cycles where, uh, you know, you're inspiring CO2 and expiring oxygen or vice versa, depending on if you're a primary producer or a heterotroph. Uh, and so that those same kinds of processes can happen in the ocean where if you get an increased level of CO2, you can get lower layers of the ocean depleted in oxygen. And that's, that's what we call hypoxia. And this is also largely driven by nutrient uh, pollution in the ocean. So you see extreme levels of hypoxia often in places like the Gulf because uh, you have nutrient pulses that has all this organic material and then microbes, which do the same processes that we do in that they're uh, munching up organic material and as a byproduct, they're using oxygen and producing CO2 to do that. And so once you get all of this organic material that runs off into the ocean, these microbes are, are doing that process using oxygen and producing CO2. And so that's when you see those, those paired uh, processes of low oxygen, high CO2, AKA low pH. And we see that along the Oregon coast too, not, not so much with runoff on a coastwide level, but we have upwelling pulses happen along the Oregon coast, which also bring nutrients to the surface, which can have a similar uh, mechanism to produce hypoxic or anoxic waters. Oregon is uh, a hotspot for ocean acidification. Why is that happening? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is a challenging one without going back to sort of basics of oceanography and marine science. The interesting thing about the U.S. West Coast, and in particular, Oregon and Washington and Northern California, is that we're located on an eastern boundary current system. So if you if you put in your mind's eye the map of the North Pacific Ocean, you can imagine a big circle or gyre of water. So the current runs from north to south, from Alaska towards Mexico. And because that's the direction that our currents go, if you pair that with the way the Earth is rotating, 
you get displacement of water along the coastline offshore. So water is constantly being moved away from the, of the coastline at the surface based on that circulation and as the earth rotates. You have water moving away from the coastlines. And when the surface water moves away from the coastline, it gets replaced by really deep water. And that deep water is very rich in nutrients and cold, which is part of the reason we have such a, a biodiverse, rich uh, habitat along the Oregon coastline, but it's also low in pH. And that's sort of happening in the absence of ocean acidification. That is just part of the way Eastern boundary current systems are. But what that means is that Oregon was already on the, so to speak, you know, front lines of a low pH global ocean because we're getting these pulses in the spring and summer of low pH water, even in the absence of ocean acidification. And now we look at our present day levels of pH and what we expect to see in the future. And you make a stressful situation pH wise even more stressful. And so we're seeing pH levels along this coastline that we won't see in other global locales till 2100 that were just sort of happen to be situated in a location that upwelling induced low pH is coinciding with anthropogenic or human caused OA and it makes for some fairly corrosive conditions when things line up just so. Wow. Yeah, that's uh that's a big deal for uh, the or folks on the Oregon coast and our uh, fisheries. And is this the same all up and down the West coast or is it just Oregon? It's a good question. If you take a look at some of the maps, it's not just Oregon. I would say it's focused sort of Washington, Oregon uh, and Northern California. If you take a look at the map, you notice that California's coastline sort of falls off a little bit at mm -hmm. the tail after you get around point deception. And so they don't have, because of the shape of the coastline, of those oceanographic conditions change a little bit and you don't have the same level of upwelling as you see in uh, Oregon, Washington, and California. Wind also plays a huge role. So this is particularly driven when you get a sustained level of north to south winds that can further displace those surface waters. And we see some of those wind speeds consistently happening along Washington, Oregon, and Northern California more than most other places in the world. So. Um, it's broader than just Oregon, but in terms of the globe, we're pretty uh, we're pretty exposed. Well, let's move into the research project that y'all are working on: the assessing community vulner vulnerability to ocean acidification across the California current ecosystem. Um, yeah, go if you could go into what you're researching and you know some of the, some of the differences between oceanographic, ecological, and social vulnerabilities and adaptation opportunities. Specifically, I think you're all focusing on the shellfish industry. And uh, so, yeah, if you could kind of describe that. And then, Ryan, we could go into some of the policy uh, implications and opportunities there for, you know, adapting to this front line of ocean acidification we're experiencing here in Oregon. Great. Yeah. So the project that Ryan and I are a part of is this sort of comprehensive look at the vulnerability of the West Coast in Oregon and California to ocean acidification and opportunities to adapt and mitigate those uh, impacts from ocean acidification. And that can happen through multiple avenues. So you can be oceanographically vulnerable or there are oceanographic opportunities. You could be ecologically vulnerable. You could be socially vulnerable. And then there are policy levers that you can pull to reduce those vulnerabilities. Um, so we're sort of trying to touch on all of those things as a part of this multi-year 
multi-team member project. So the first part of that is an oceanographic exploration of vulnerability. So there's a huge team led by Tessa Hill that has been pulling together all the oceanographic data we can, we can find on pH, uh, temperature, any carbonate chemistry data through back through time to build a huge spatial assessment of, okay, what spots along the West Coast are most uh, vulnerable to OA? Where is the pH lowest? Does it happen more in El Nino years or not during El Nino? So we can ask all kinds of questions about uh, what locations are oceanographically vulnerable. And then there's a secondary layer about ecological vulnerability. So now you know uh, when or where particular zones are exposed to low pH, and then what's the impact of that on the organisms in those ecosystems. So uh, there are multiple marine taxa that these folks are looking at. So Christy Croker's work has tied into a lot of this. She's at UC Santa Cruz. Um, things like Dungeness crab, um, urchins, uh, oysters, mussels, clams, all of these organisms may have different thresholds. So they may be able to tolerate more corrosive or more low pH conditions better than another organism. Um, are the, the ranges where those species live coinciding with the locations that are oceanographically vulnerable? So you have the oceanography, you have the ecology, and then you have the human communities or the social components. And so Ryan and I have been participating in some of that social vulnerability analysis. So uh, in particular with shellfish farmers. So they are located you know, right on the coast. They have oysters in the water or abalone and mussels, clams, which are, as we know, particularly vulnerable to ocean acidification. So how does that impact them as uh, human communities living on the coastline? And then what can they do to respond to those changes? Are there approaches or strategies that they can take that can reduce that vulnerability and make them more resilient? And then, um, you know, what what are our policy options? So Ryan, do you want to talk briefly about your work with policy exploration? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think that's a pretty natural segue. Um, and so so when we think about the policy sort of landscape, Melissa and I are, are kind of thinking of it in terms of, you know, what is current US-centric ocean acidification policy? Um, and, and kind of visualizing a Venn diagram, which is something we're literally doing. Um, and, and how is OA ocean acidification policies overlapping with, you know, aquaculture and marine management policies, uh, specifically in California and Oregon? Um, the way a lot of environmental laws, like say the Clean Water Act, um, sort of interact is or, or are carried out, they're done so by the state. Um, and, and so a critical piece of this policy analysis is understanding what state and local lever levers we have um, for policy change there. Um, so right now, a, a large part of our research is seeing what alignment exists, you know, across federal and state uh, ocean acidification policies. Um, one thing about ocean acidification policy is that it's relatively a recent thing where it's moved from the priority of it being a monitoring issue where the federal government very much placed an emphasis on keeping track of ocean acidification conditions. Um, and now in, in maybe say the recent last decade, uh, really trying to hone in on how policies will affect communities um, and how they can be inclusive of them. 
Um, and, and that's kind of what spawned this research. Um, so we're really looking at this mix of what are ocean acidification policies, what are aquaculture policies, um, and, and given what we know about the need of growers, um, what what changes might be necessary in those policy frameworks? Nice. And in Oregon, there's a it's pretty robust, right? There's the uh, OA and a hypoxia council. Could you? describe what's happening on a policy level for Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you think of when you think of policy, you might also think of regulation. And and unfortunately in, in this sort of current era, there isn't a lot of policy with real teeth that it goes after regulating ocean acidification at the state level. Um, as Mel sort of hinted on, this is very much like a global problem. And it ultimately does come down to curbing global CO2 emissions. The thing with ocean acidification is like it's there's a huge time lag in, in the effects. Um, so without much regulatory teeth and policy right now, one of the first steps that a lot of states have taken is to create these um, OAH councils. Um, California has done similar and, and Oregon did too. And, and there's also other regional networks. Um, Washington has one as well. Um, the OAH council in Oregon seeks to basically provide policy guidance to uh, a whole host of state agencies and policymakers. Um, and so they're really making sure that any sort of policy that might be related to coastal communities or you know, uh, climate change bills or anything like that, that there's sort of a, a consideration of ocean acidification in those policies. Um, and they're comprised of uh, you know, multiple agency representatives, um, tribal council leaders, um, and, and plenty of other experts to inform those sort of policy recommendations. So I know that the shellfish industry is um, currently impacted. I've heard stories of farmers having to add buffers to their tanks and these kinds of things. What are some of these in the industry side uh, adaptation strategies that they're using in yeah, what, what future uh, strategies can be implemented or, or kind of explored? Yeah, that's a great question. And we've gotten a lot of color on that over the last year and a half talking to growers along the West Coast. So I would say there are some direct response things that can help and some indirect response things that, that can help growers. So what I mean is um, like the direct responses to low pH are things like what you just mentioned. So for example, um, well, I guess going back, part of the, the big push to figure out what these things were came from hatchery collapses in 2007, 2008 uh, along the, the Oregon coast. So hatcheries where, you know, they produce a ton of tiny little baby oysters, which are particularly vulnerable to OA because they're just starting to build their shells. And so at that time, there were collapses in hatcheries, which supply growers across the West Coast. And so it caused this big bottleneck in the production of oysters along the coastline. And at first people didn't know what the issue was. They weren't sure if it was a disease. They weren't sure if it was, you know, some other issue with the water or, or something else and landed ultimately on um, a low pH as the driver for collapse, which was a pair just as we spoke about before. It was an upwelling induced low pH paired with stress from OA led to, to that collapse. And so there were some of these direct response opportunities that arose from that. So if you're a hatchery, your product, your seed is not in the water. You have a land-based facility and you're pumping water into your facility um, to rear small oysters. 
and you can actually add alkalinity, basically modify the chemistry of the water uh, during times of low pH such that your tanks aren't experiencing such a low pH. And so that is like a direct response to low pH that works and farms have been implementing that or strategically turning their pumps on and off and turning it to recirculate at times when maybe at night and the water is, is more acidic or a time during upwelling um, where they can kind of toggle those those chemical levers, if you will, to make their product more resilient. Uh, now those strategies don't work if you have product in the water, if you have adult oysters, you're just exposed to whatever is out in the environment. And so um, people start to get a little more creative in, in those scenarios. There are things like um, breeding more resilient strains of oysters. So trying to find um, broodstock that is resistant to OA that you can then keep to produce oysters that are gonna be able to withstand that. And we've seen that across taxa. There are folks trying to do that with coral reefs that are more resistant to bleaching, for example. So um, this is being explored in other avenues. Uh, and then there are these indirect things where a lot of times farmers and, and shellfish growers are saying, well, you know, I would love to see, I would love to culture a new species that I'm not already culturing, or uh, I want to be able to move, switch gear or move my, my equipment around my lease area, which isn't necessarily going to help them with low pH, but it might make their business more resilient such that if they see a loss of, of their organisms due to OA, they're more resilient to that loss because they're more resilient overall. So those sort of indirect things where they're saying, well, there's maybe nothing I can do about low pH, but I want my business to be able to weather periods of stress more effectively. And in order to do that, uh, there's a whole other list of strategies. That's great. There's sounds like there's a lot of things to explore and a lot of options. Are you seeing, Ryan, on the state level or maybe even the federal level, um, legislation that's, uh, you know, addressing these um, issues and kind of offering some flexibility for these producers? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of this will ultimately boil down to management of, of aquaculture operations along the Oregon coast. Um, but, but one thing that has been really encouraging from the state um, is the implementation of an OAH action plan. Um, again, other states have done this as well, but uh, Oregon has place a particular uh, emphasis on, you know, facilitating these sort of resiliency projects and adaptation strategies. Um, and so there's a willingness, at least from the state level, to definitely encourage these sort of activities and strategies. Um, these action plans usually task all state agencies that are in some way involved um, with coastal communities to sort of facilitate these activities. Um, again, it's much more of a guiding document, but it does uh, put the impetus on state agencies to sort of carry out these policies um, and management practices. So stepping away just for a second from the producers, having this thought about the creatures that aren't, you know, they're just in these systems that aren't being managed, you know, what, what can be done? And it makes me think, is there a threshold for OA, ocean acidification, in our oceans, or if we keep emitting, is it just going to get worse and worse? That's a tough question. Um, I mean, yes to the last part of that question. If we keep emitting carbon to the atmosphere, it will get worse and worse. There's not a threshold of like how much the ocean will acidify. Uh, as in classic scientist form, I guess I have to give the answer of <laughs> yeah, because it does. So yeah. There are there absolutely are thresholds. Yeah. 
what those thresholds are depends hugely on what species, what taxa, what they've been exposed to in the past, where they are. So, and, and some of that is, is being explored by this project. Like what are the thresholds locally? What species have different thresholds? How close are we to those thresholds? So those are huge questions in the scientific realm right now. Yeah. Um, we know they're there, right? Not, nothing can tolerate everything. And, and we see, we've seen that, right? Like we saw thresholds reached and exceeded in the hatchery collapses. So it is totally, uh, you know, possible that we'll see events like that where thresholds are exceeded and we do have major loss. And you saw that with, with heat in the last year in the Pacific Northwest West heat wave where temperature thresholds were reached and there was mass mortality of, of intertidal shellfish, either for aquaculture or just native species. Um, and, and that's, that's, yeah, that's a legitimate concern. At the same time, there are things we can do in the absence of getting our act together on emissions to reduce the likelihood of those events occurring. So um, Ryan touched on a little bit, but things like improving overall water quality. So it's not just emissions that can make water more acidic. There are other things that can reduce the pH like agricultural runoff um, and increased levels of nutrients. So, you know, we can make a change on coastal acidification right now as a local government, even if your emissions contribution is a drop in the bucket. And so in some ways, that's, that's a quite a hopeful message because we're not, we don't have our hands tied completely on those things. Yeah, I mean, from the policy side, you know, continuing off what Mel is saying here is in Oregon specifically, you can you can look at, you know, freshwater inputs as a major driver potentially to ocean acidification uh, conditions um, or estuary conditions overall. Um, and so one one avenue that has been, you know, some other experts have said this is a potential avenue for policy change is, is through adding water quality or pH to water quality criteria. Um, and that would enable basically in Oregon's case, um, Department of Environmental Quality to list marine waters as impaired. Um, a lot of the Clean Water Act, in, at least in Oregon, is really centered around freshwater ecosystems. Um, but now we'd be able to extend it to basically territorial waters um, and the marine environment. You all were kind of hitting on this a little bit from this experience working on this research project. What are you kind of thinking towards a better world? And you kind of were touching on it a little bit already with these um, direct things that can happen on a local level. You know, a lot of these impacts really emanate from like sort of a multi-stressor environment. And so I think our approach to solving them has to be, you know, very similar in approach. It is definitely reducing CO2 emissions globally through international agreements, but there are certainly things that states can act to do now to improve local conditions. Um, you know, whether that's improving water quality or enabling communities to experience a different regulatory environment, um, just adding resources to some of these under-resourced already community, coastal communities. Um, it is not gonna just be one sort of lever. And, and right now we're early enough into this problem, which is you know, not maybe so early in people's eyes, but we have solutions right now. Um, the longer we wait to make sort of these other larger agreements, you know, the fewer solutions we'll have. Um, so it's best to explore them all right now and, and try and at least test them out while we still can. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with Ryan. I guess I can speak sort of to the aquaculture side of things since Ryan spoke to the OA side of things. Aquaculture landscape in Oregon and the West Coast is a really interesting space. And I think it, it's got all the dramas of, of a small town, you know, fight over who should do what and should we have it, should we not? And all, all of that's legitimate, but I also think that aquaculture, you know, the options aren't do it wrong or, or not at all. We can do it and do it right. And it's a huge opportunity if we do do it right. So we import so much of our seafood which is problematic for lots of reasons, emissions being one of those reasons, right? We're, we're paying to you know, produce uh, some seafood product in China and then ship it to the East Coast and then ship it to the West Coast. And you look at the carbon footprint of that, that item that you ate and it's astronomical. And so barring seafood locally due to environmental reasons, it's a bit odd, right? So we, we have an opportunity to say, yes, we're gonna support aquaculture, but we're gonna do it in a way that is sustainable. We're gonna do it in a way that is right. And as a result, we'll have a stronger local economy. We can reduce our global carbon footprint and um, you know, eat sustainably. And so I think that care should be taken as we approach aquaculture in Oregon and on the West Coast, but that um, you know, public perception of aquaculture needs to zoom out to understand the global footprint of the seed food that you're eating if you want to make an informed decision about whether or not aquaculture on the coastline is you know good or bad particularly with shellfish aquaculture because they're totally passive you're not feeding those products anything they just uh, filter seawater and then we get to eat them so it's a, it's a great opportunity for sustainability and um, that's definitely you know, a, a hopeful piece of this work is learning about the people that are supporting an industry that has an immense opportunity to be a positive influence on Oregon and, and California communities. Great way to end it. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate you all coming onto the show. This issue really highlights the interconnected nature of all these really in-depth uh, ecological, social, oceanographic systems. So thank you so much for taking the time, uh, Melissa and Ryan, coming on Coast Range Radio. Awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks for joining us on Coast Range Radio, radio show and podcast that holds conversations with inspiring individuals who are dedicated to creating a better world. Coast Range Radio is available on all podcasting services. You can check us out online or subscribe to the newest episode uh, every two weeks. Tune into your local community station in Oregon. You can find uh, the show uh, across Western Oregon on local community stations. Support your local station. And thanks to our listeners. We'll talk to you next time. to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, what do we want? Multiracial democracy. When do we want it? Now. What stands in the way? White supremacy that has disregarded, derailed, and violently defied that democracy at multiple important turns. 
those anguished over the Rittenhouse acquittal, depressed by racist police brutality, unnerved by the failure to take the January 6th insurrection seriously, and worried about 